0: It was a way for me to express my femininity where I felt um, unsafe or unallowed to do so in society otherwise.
1: Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Live podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bella Dance Live podcast, another amazing episode with such an incredible Guest. Please welcome Rahel Klayman to our show She is the choreography and artistic director of ballet troupe The Halwa Dancers As well as she herself danced with former ballet troupe Banat Dalach And Ninawa Eastern Magic Folkloric Dance Company Rahel's film credits include the star role in the award-winning short film Imago, as well as a featured performance in an episode of popular TV show Hellcats. Rahel was a featured performer in the high-profile event Illuminato Town in 2011 and had the privilege of having her choreography selected for the 2012 Shimmy Mob, the world's largest ballet dance flash mob featuring thousands of dancers all over the globe. She has choreographed solo performances for the talent portion of Miss Canada, Miss Hong Kong and Miss China International competitions, as well as Salomon's dance of the seven veils in 2013 production of the play by oscar wilde in this interview we touch such a spectrum of different topics starting from gender identity issues and finding femininity through dance and how she found the joy and balance of feminine energy in for herself through dance, and how now rahel helps her students to find this balance to and self-acceptance for themselves and for their body as well as we touched a lot of insightful business tips and entrepreneurial tips for many dancers who dream or already actively participating in professional career both for teachers and for performers so stay tuned and get ready to take some notes because there are some very practical tips that you can definitely apply to your activities and in general, the idea of uh, not following the rules and the freedom and luxury of just allowing yourself to be yourself, even if that may not always go along with society, uh, traditional norms of what we should do, how we should live our lives and specifically for ballet dancers, what we should do and how we should look and etc all these will be touched in this interview and i'm pretty sure everyone will find whatever speaks and specific to them and whatever they can relate to and don't forget that at the end of the interview let us know what you think. Uh, don't forget to message me, to message our amazing guest, or tag us on your uh, stories if you want to share uh, this podcast with your friends. But I'm pretty sure you will get a lot of inspiration and definitely desire to share this interview with other dancers who you think may benefit from listening to this conversation. So let's dive in. But before that, I just want to do a quick reminder. Together we move live. Jelena is partnering with dance studios and dance sponsors around the world to present series of workshops via Zoom. Tickets are available for those who can give more and support, as well as those who are financially affected by the pandemic. All proceeds go to benefit dance studios and event sponsors so that we may once again dance physically together once it is safe. You can register for these workshops via gelina.eventbrite.com. I will include link in the show notes. Hello, dear Hal. How are you doing? And welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi, I am great. Thank you so much. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks for asking. I'm very excited to have a a conversation today with you and uh, excited for many interesting topics that I kind of can sense we will touch and uh, talking about your experience. But first, of course, I would love to start from the very beginning. So I know you got introduced to balladins around 15 years old, but Mm. you were very active uh, with dance before that. So can you tell a little bit about that period of your uh, life and how actually you got, how did you spot uh, belly dance and what made you go attend the class?
0: Sure. Well, first, I just want to say how grateful and excited and honored I am to be on this podcast. I think you and your productions are just amazing. And so I just wanted to, um, yeah, say thank you and how stoked (laughs) I am. Um, So my baby belly dance experience. Um, I actually didn't have a lot of dance experience prior to belly dance. Mm -hmm. I am kicking myself now wishing that you know my mom had put me in ballet when I was younger because it would be so much easier now um, but I did I did kind of like dabble I did like a couple hip-hop classes I did a little bit of like modern and ballet when I was really young but nothing like I wasn't like trained in that in any of those styles. I just kind of took like a class hero there. Um, my family was really into like, Allowing us, my siblings and I, to have like self exploration and to be creative. So I took a lot of different classes. I did karate and boxing and swimming and fencing and pottery and art and theater and drama and and a little bit of dancing. So it was like it Mm -hmm. wasn't like I was a dancer. I was just kind of this like Renaissance child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And when I was 15, to give you a little background, I had a lot of like gender identity issues when I was younger, um, I felt really sensitive to a world um, that was run by patriarchy and misogyny. And so even from a young age, I was very sensitive to the fact that women were viewed as less valuable um, and that women's value was coming from their appearance and their femininity. And I was, I was a cute kid, but I was not a very attractive young child. Um, I was like a little chubby and I was taller than all the other girls and I had short hair and I was awkward and nerdy and I had braces and glasses and people bullied me. And I was like, I I didn't identify with being very feminine and girls had been my abusers, like they had been my bullies. And so I saw femininity as being um, powerful in a negative way. And I didn't know how to be a girl and how to be powerful. So I was a tomboy. I don't know if you um, – so I was like I, – I didn't want to be a boy, but I didn't want to be a girl. And so I just was this kind of like weird – Um, struggling child and our teenager. And I was trying to like find my femininity, but I was very resistant to it. So I was like, I don't like pink and I don't like sparkles and like girls are stupid. And like, and I played drums. That was my thing. I was like, I did the boy stuff, but I was also really bad at sports. So (laughs) I didn't know where I quite fit in. And um, to me, the girls that I had seen, they were powerful by being mean Or by being um, like using their sexuality and being slutty. And I didn't like that at the time. Now I'm all like free the sluts. Like there's no hierarchy to femininity. Like everyone's awesome. But at the time I was like I don't want to be a slut. So um, I wanted to express myself in a physical way. But I was not a very athletic kid. And I didn't work well in teams. So sports weren't my thing. My family, um, we spend the summers on this tiny little hippie island off the coast of BC called Hornby Island. It's a bee- my like favorite place in the world. It's so magical and beautiful. And there's a farmer's market in the forest. Actually, it used to be out in the field. It's in the forest now. Um, but years and years ago, it was in a field. And I used to make jewelry, like little macrame hemp jewelry and mm-hmm. sell it at the market when I was like 14. That was my mm-hmm. first job. I was an entrepreneur from 14 (laughs) (laughs) and I was at the market selling jewelry and they sometimes would have performers like busking at the market. And this woman came out and she was like, beautiful like caramel skin and curves and long black curly hair and she was wearing the like, orange and yellow and she had coins on and this amazing music was playing and she was moving in this way that was so joyful and so sexy without but, but in a way I had never seen before and it was really powerful and I I now realize afterwards just based off of geography and like timing I think I know who it was I think it was Um, a dancer from BC named Yasmina because she also goes to Hornby Island. So I think it was her, um, which is pretty cool. Um, But I was like, ooh, this is really cool. And then my mom actually was the one who signed up for classes at the JCC, the community center, the Jewish community center in my city. And she was like, I'm going to take belly dance classes. Do you want to come with me? And I was like, man, not really. Like I'd seen it and I'd been really into it, but I was still like, that's girly. That's not for me. And then my mom injured herself, as she always does, and had to um, stop taking the classes. And I think I then ended up taking her spot. That's how she tells the story. I remember it as being like, I wanted to take belly dancing and I took the classes and then she joined me. Anyway, it's one of those two things. Um, (laughs) But I started taking classes at the JCC with a teacher named Narmaya She was, like, the best in Vancouver at the time, Um, and uh, I pretty much immediately fell in love. Like, it was – I just loved the way that the movements looked, and I was – I'm not going to lie, like, I'm really competitive, and – Um, I also am just kind of like I pick certain things up naturally. And I was good. And I was like, all right, I can get into this. I feel this. This is my jam. And I had really, really bad body image, as well as like these gender identity issues. And Um, I hated watching my body in the mirror, but I slowly started to see, like, for example, doing a Maya, like a downward infinity, it gave the illusion of my having hips on my slim, you know, uh, square boyish body. And I was like, this is really beautiful. I can look beautiful the way that I'm moving and, you know, shimmying and jiggling. And that was like, celebrated and I I just I fell in love right away and I very quickly progressed um it was a way for me to express my femininity where I felt um unsafe or unallowed to do so in society otherwise so it was like I had these two identities where I could be like my tomboy self is my pedestrian self. And then when I got to belly dance, I could like put on the glitter and be all sparkly because it was my persona and it wasn't me. And now they're very integrated and I'm super, super girly as well as very masculine in other ways. But it was like the start of me starting to, um, reconnect to and, and accept and find balance for myself. Um, and, uh, And, and also to start to the slow journey of, of loving my body, um, And then my teacher, after a couple of years, like put me in the performance track and I was like performing with the group. And then um, after, once I was 18, so I'd been dancing for three years, she started like sending me out to some of the gigs that she couldn't do. It was mostly like senior centers, like old folks homes and like, you know, care centers. So I did a lot of those. And then I started to do restaurants. And then my teacher moved to um, Australia to do her master's degree and I kind of like, she kind of like gave me all her costumes and gave me her shows and I started to perform obviously way too early. Um, but that was, I'm really grateful that that happened. Um, and then I started teaching pretty soon after that. So I started dancing in 2002 and I started teaching in 2008. So five years, um, and I'd been dancing professionally for two years, which is crazy for like an 18 year old. Um, yeah, I think oh, wow. that's <laughs> kind of the the beginning.
1: Well, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was very unexpected uh but so interesting and so many insights. Like first of all, I am really sorry to hear about your uh, story than you were like a kid and like when what ex- you experienced and uh, uh I I can say I share the same like experience but like feeling that you are not accepted by your uh let's say um Fr- friends or like other kids of the same age yeah. peers yeah it's uh, it's all stuff and especially for kids that you're trying to figure out your own stuff but mm-hmm. at the same time i cannot believe i cannot imagine that you non non not attractive uh, uh, child i like almost like can't believe it completely because uh looking at you you have so much even through your photos and videos today you have so much femininity so much sensuality in you like it's almost like unimaginable <laughs> <laughs> hearing your story like what what do you mean by all that what does um how would you define femininity today or elements of femininity that you experience uh, and you discovered for yourself uh today
0: Um, that's a really good question. First of all, thank you for the lovely compliments. Um, I, so uh, when I say feminine and masculine, I'm, in part ways playing into this is the sort of societal norms of what has been determined as feminine and masculine. Um, I define those very differently from myself. For me, femininity and masculinity are non-binary. Obviously they're part of the same holistic whole. And I believe that everyone is intended to have a balance of both. And the more that I'm able to connect to like my archetypal or archetypal, um, aspects of, of what is considered both societally and then more sort of, you know, spiritually masculine and feminine, the more whole that I feel. Um, and, and in my, my partner, for example, like I, the things that I love about him are the balance of his masculinity and femininity. So what does that mean? Well, society says femininity is emotional it is um, nu- nurturing. It is caring. It is um, uh, vulnerable. Um, it is pink and sparkly, and it is um, sort of frivolous um, and and um, what was the other word I was gonna say? Like along the lines of of emotional, but I guess more like intuitive. Um, and caring, whereas masculine is societally deemed as more um, strong and grounded and uh, consistent, uh, rational, um, powerful in different ways, headstrong, um, and uh, sort of like saviour as opposed to nurturer. Um, However, I personally don't deem those things so straightforward. I believe that vulnerability is very powerful. And I believe that um, nurturing and caring are very powerful. And so like, I really would like to see our society start to be more flexible and um, uh, comprehensive or holistic in their approach to viewing these Um, archetypes of femininity and masculinity, but I think that because we've grown up in a society of, you know, hundreds of years or thousands of years, actually of, of patriarchy, we've have this like ingrained um, internalized misogyny where we deem things that, that are um, typically feminine as being negative. So, you know, we say, oh, you, to men, it's an insult to say, you do that like a girl or, um, you know, to to insult people by our our society's homophobia is is the fear of, of masculine and feminine being intertwined and the transphobias is, is is a result of that as well. And I would just like to see men being more comfortable doing things that society deems as feminine because there's no such thing like I think that they're just energies like there's there's this thing that we've we've named feminine and I think that it has a, like an essence or a soul, if you will, or like a um, an energy of this like it's yin, it's it's the moon, it's it's um, it's flowing, it's um, uh, caring, it's soft and then there's you know yang which is the sun and it's strong and it's powerful and but those things need to coexist they're part of a duality of a holistic whole um if that makes sense
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's very interesting how the, even sometimes the same actions but taken by a male or female a person can be described completely uh, different uh, uh, according to the society norms of what is acceptable. Although if to mm-hmm. look at it's basically like people doing the same, but uh a female will be like one description of her personality, like I don't know, bossy, bossy or like something mm-hmm. else, while the guy may be like, oh, entrepreneurial or something like that, or totally. initiative, something like that. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. And guess
0: what I was when I was a kid? Mm. But- Yeah, I was Miss Bossy. (laughs) Mm. But now I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a leader and I'm a teacher. Um, But, you know, I I was bossy when I was a kid. That's how I was told I was. And, you know, we teach women from a very young age that, You should value certain things in yourself. You should want to be pretty. You should want to be um, nice. You should want to be sweet. And you don't want to have aggression. You don't want to have – you don't want to be bossy. You don't want to be a leader. You don't want to be strong. Um, You know, being – you should want to be masculine, but you shouldn't be allowed to. And then men need to be emotionless and to be protectors and be strong and be – Aggressive aggression is the only emotion that's sort of permissible. And I think that that's so dangerous and so wrong. And I think that, you know, both um, sexes, I don't want to say genders cause there's not, there's more than, I mean, there's more than two gen, um, sexes as well, but everyone should be able to be on a spectrum and, and every, uh, um, action, uh, value like, um, aesthetics, there shouldn't be anything that is masculine or feminine. Like it should all be allowed by everybody. I think like, it's so insane to say like this color belongs to this gender and those activities belong to that gender. And, um, uh, like I, I, I really love and appreciate actually yesterday was, uh, I think yesterday or the day before was, um, non-binary person's appreciation day or something like that. I can't remember the words exactly, but it was a day, um, about nonbinary uh, non-binary or, or, um, you know, gender fluid awareness. And I just think that like, in reality, we're all non-binary. We're all on a, on a range. And, and I hope that we get to a point one day in society where we look back at our generation and we go, how stupid were we that we thought that, you know, we had to be one way or another. And, you know, I think that everyone, if, if given the societal opportunity would be a lot more fluid and would be a lot healthier if given that, um, allowance, like, Men are not allowed to show emotion, and, and women are told that our emotions are irrational and, and hysterical, and how amazing would our society be, would our, our world be, if we were allowed to express, if both of us, if all of us were allowed to express all of those things, and if it was okay,
1: You also mentioned that through belly dance you start uh, paying attention and appreciating your body and it was one of the elements that taught you to love your body. Uh, What does it mean for you loving your body like today?
0: That's a really complicated question. Mm-hmm. I still have not achieved that yet. I am still working on it. Um, and I think this ties into kind of the the previous conversation, like it's still all related that we um I'm gonna go in a bit of a tangent here. Sorry, mm-hmm. this is my sure. sort of my jam. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but we 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 are raised in a society that is um dictated by patriarchy and consumerism. So it tells us that um ma- masculinity and and sort of the the male power is the hi- is at the top of the hierarchy and women because we are deemed you know inferior um, we are told from a very young age that our value is our physical appearance. So we're told we're pretty. Like my brother and my my male friends were all told, you're so brave, you're so strong, you're so smart. And I was told some of those things too, but I was told a lot I was really pretty or that I should be pretty, you know, and that's our value is like we're supposed to be physically attractive. So there's this huge issue in in our world with – self-acceptance around the physicality, around the body, um, because we're told that This is our value. This is our our um, commodity, um, our uh, a currency. The way that we move through the world as women is that we need to be beautiful, but we're also told because we live in a consumerist society that we should never believe that we've actually achieved that, that we've actually gotten to a place where we feel beautiful, because then we'll stop buying stuff, right? So there is a multi-billion-dollar diet and um, beauty product and fashion industry because we're told. The thing you should want to be the most is beautiful um, and specifically thin, because um, we have a fat phobic society, and in most cases, also light-skinned because we have a, um, a colorist and white supremacist society. Um and so there are certain beauty standards that we're supposed to be constantly trying trying to achieve. And even for those of us who are skin are you know, thin or light-skinned, it's still completely unattainable. So, While I want to speak about body image and my journey with that, I also want to just say that none of us are immune um, to this internalized patriarchy and consumerism from this capitalist society. Um, And so even though I'm, you know, like I try to be as woke as I can and I'm trying to be this feminist and I try to um, uh, be a, a facilitator of body image and positivity, like in my classes and for my students, um, I am I am not um, completely free of that, and I struggle sometimes on a daily basis still with body image. But I've come really really far, and belly dancing has played a huge role. Um, in that for me and as I said it it, it allowed me to see the beauty of what the body can do rather than what it looks like. Um, The beauty of creating art and creating movement and creating storytelling um, through the body and so it becomes this vessel of power as opposed to a vessel of just aesthetics. And I use belly dancing as a tool um, to try to help my students with that. Just the other day, um, I was having a private lesson with a student and she always wore high-waisted pants so she'd have her pants like all the way up over um to the middle of her waist and she was really struggling to get the shimmy just like a basic Egyptian knee shimmy and she was focusing so much on trying to get her knees to move and I was like you need to focus on where you're jiggling like look at your thighs look at your hips we need to get the jiggle to happen um and I was like you know if you have a belly button ring, you can imagine the belly button ring jiggling back and forth. And she pulled her pants, rolled her pants down and she revealed that she had a belly button ring hiding this whole time for me for weeks. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I'd seen her belly. And then she started to shimmy and she had this beautiful jiggle and her belly and her belly button were just doing this side to side. And I was like, Oh my God, there is your shimmy. Like, look how amazing that is. And she's like, I hate my body. And I was like, girl, like, first of all, And then I explained to her some of the things that I'm I'm talking to you about. And I said, your body is beautiful, first of all. And when you are in this world, and especially like she's in like the fitness world, which is very like... Zero body percent, zero body fat, and you have to have, you know, flat abs and you can't jiggle and da-da-da-da-da. You're constantly being fed these unattainable beauty standards, especially if that's not a natural or healthy state for you. And I was like, I really hope that belly dancing creates the balance for you in your life where you're able to see a whole community and a whole world that for the most part, obviously, we have issues within our community too. There's a lot of fat phobia, there's a lot of body shaming, there's a lot of colorism. Um, but there is more of an acceptance in the belly dance world compared to, you know, for say the, the fitness world or ballet world mm-hmm. um, around various, a little bit more range of, of acceptance of body and the more of a celebration of body fat, especially in Egypt, where the dance comes from. You know, I would be criticized for being too thin and um, the beauty of the dances around the jiggle of the body. And I was I was just going on this whole like train about this with her. And by the end, like I think her she literally like did the motion of taking her hands to her head and like, you know, being like, like mind blown because she was just like, oh, my God, like I've never even thought about or entertained the idea that like fat could be beautiful And that's the beauty of belly dancing is that it gives a little bit more um, range of body acceptance where – you can create beautiful lines and beautiful stories as a thin, muscular woman, and you can create or man or or person, and you can create beautiful lines and aesthetic as a curvy person or as a jiggly person or a round person. Um, there's no limitations to how we can express and create art through this particular dance form um, by our bodies, only by our minds, right? So if we're in a certain community that's uh, a little bit less. Um, accepting then um there may be more issues there but i think for the most part generally we've had this sort of historical um uh acceptance or or at least tolerance of more body shapes and belly dancing promotes that in many ways um inverse of that however i so i'm I'm not curvy. I have no boobs. I have no hips. I've worked really hard for my butt. (laughs) It is barely there. Um, And I'm – inverse of of the society, you know, normal society that tells me like, you need to be super, super thin. The belly dance society tells me real women have curves, and you need to have boobs and hips to be Mm -hmm. beautiful. And and so I'm kind of met in the middle here where I'm struggling to fit into either world where I feel like not thin enough to meet the unrealistic beauty standards of of the Western, um, you know, commercial society, and then I feel not curvy enough or not feminine enough to fit the beauty standards of, of what belly dancing has deemed to be beautiful. So there it's not free of issues. Um, but I think that there's just so much more opportunity for body positivity in this dance form, um, versus other dances or even other physical activities. And, uh, I, I work really, really hard in my classes to make everyone feel beautiful and feel accepted um to make sure that costumes are available in all sizes and that no one feels that they are um not good enough or not beautiful enough for any reason. I allowed, you know, I know that some teachers, don't allow their their performers to have short hair or to have body hair. Um, and I I have no limitations uh, and in and, and try to celebrate as much as I can, you know, outwardly to my students, that they're allowed to express themselves and to be and look anyway, because everybody is beautiful. And I think that should be the message of belly dancing. Mm,
1: yeah, that's so true. Like, that's the beauty of belly dance that it's Uh, really like all-inclusive, especially comparing to many other uh, spheres of our life. Mm -hmm. But by interesting coincidence, I was just thinking like I recently read uh, somewhere the idea um, talking about social norms and upbringing between boys and girls and that Mm -hmm. boys are typically taught that their body is the tool to achieve their yeah. goals mm-hmm. rather than girls are usually taught that their body is uh, the object for constant improvements mm-hmm. and um, that's interesting like for me it was uh, like sort of like thought to review a lot of things and it's not like um i for instance don't consider Desire to improve something in you as a bad thing. I think it's we all will have and it's part of our healthy like improvement of of life. But at the same time, so much attention specifically to the body and appearance, it often uh, evolves into the hate relationship with yourself yeah, and then hate relationship between each other. As a, mm-hmm. a female community, especially, and this is something mm-hmm. that even you brought up in your story while you were a kid. You, uh, I think, you even said something like you saw the power of other girls in being mean or super mm-hmm. sexual, and mm-hmm. this is kind of abuse among a female um, community, and mm-hmm. uh, you experienced it as a kid. But I also want to, uh, to ask you and. Uh, bring attention, like, uh, how do you feel it manifests, not manifest is not the best word, but how it represents in the dance community today. Because let's be honest, like we have an awesome, uh, amazing element of belly dance community that we all very supportive on one side and we want to support and cheer each other but at mm-hmm. the same time there is a lot of body shaming and hate among okay. uh, female ballet dancers towards each other which always super like fascinates me in a, not, not the best uh, way of course but it's like we saw historically um, women so for so many years and centuries where fighting for their rights to use their body as they want to present Mm -hmm. their body as you want they want Mm -hmm. and today we still we shame each other on those kind of questions and and uh, topics
0: yeah this is a big one (laughs) yes like i just want to say like it because we're talking to a more global community, everyone's going to have a different experience. I know dancers from other parts of the world where they've just had a really bad experience with cattiness and backstabbing and, um, body shaming and like, in uh, racism in their communities. Um, I'm very uh, lucky to, um, and privileged to, to be in a community that is genuinely really supportive and really kind. Um, the Vancouver community for the most part, it has been really accepting, really loving, really supportive. There has been, you know, a few little catty things here and there. Um the the commercial world obviously has more issues. Like Oh, uh, I've, I've had so many problems, like I've had to stop working in restaurants because, um, you know, the owner would say, I'd say, Oh, I, I can't, can you, I can't do this uh, show. Can I bring in so-and-so? And they'd be like, Oh, she's too fat or she's too muscular or she's Asian or whatever. And I'd be like, Oh, okay. I'm not going to dance here anymore. Cause you're an asshole. <laughs> um, uh, so there, there are issues with that. Um, Yes, we I think this kind of comes down to sort of what I was talking about before about this internalized patriarchy and this consumerist society where yes, men are told that their bodies are a tool and so they're told to desensitize and to not be connected to their bodies. Whereas women we're much more somatic, we're much more connected, but we're also told that our body is our is our currency. And it's 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 a, an object, as you said, for approval. And and our value in society is how we are seen and approved by others. So because of this, we're constantly going to be comparing ourselves to each other, um, competing, uh, and whether or not we are consciously aware of it, we've been deeply ingrained with you know as you said, hundreds or thousands of years of programming um, of of uh, of wanting to better one another. Uh, be better than one another. And, and this also relates to uh, colonialism and white supremacy, because in addition to body shaming, there is a lot of colorism and racism in our society too, um, in in our, in our community where dancers are, not hired because of the color of their skin or they're not brought into festivals or they're not given the same opportunities um, or dancers are straight up racist to them. I haven't personally experienced this in my community, um, but I, I know that it happens and in, in my, you know, friends of color. In other communities, you know I've heard their stories, and it's it's an issue, and we need to fix this and I, I I see that we're starting to wake up to it a little bit, but there's still a lot of resistance in a lot of places um, but yeah why why do we shame each other and why do we hate on each other and I think it's I think it's because we I kind of lost my train of thought there. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just went on too many tangents and I forgot where I was. I was like, okay, I have this idea, this idea, this idea. Uh, like slut shaming and I. I in many ways, I, and I, I don't mean this in an offense to, any, to anyone, but I, I blame religion in a lot of ways because like uh, Abrahamic religions um, where women's sexuality has been deemed as very dangerous and sex has been deemed as sinful. Um, and so we have this, you know, because our society is based very much in Christian values, particularly um, whether or not that's where we identify in our faith. Um, or if we grew up, you know, in a family like that, our, our society says women's sexuality is dangerous. Um, women's bodies need to be controlled. And um, sexuality is something that should be used as a commodity. Like we're sold sex constantly, but we're also told it's shameful and we should be, um, you know, uh, not ashamed. We should be ashamed and, and uh there's there's these complex relationships with sex and sexuality and then that manifests or represents as um a controlling or a um uh, like su- supervising I guess of women's bodies and as you said we fought so hard to have control over our bodies but we even though we're now trying to use our bodies in a way that is you know aren't our standards on our um um on our call, uh, we still are not immune to this internalized uh, shame. And so we say, you're too sexual, or you're not sexual enough, or you're too feminine, or you're not feminine enough. And we see so much um, slut shaming in the belly dance community as well. But then we also see women feeling this pressure to be hypersexualized when that may not be what they want. So like we see a lot, there's a growing trend in the belly dance world of fake breasts. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to do that, that's your thing. But I, I feel that there's now this sort of expectation, this beauty standard of having to have large breasts um, and for you know that to be a huge focal point of the dance. And it can and it can't be. It should be a choice. But we're told, you know, you need to be. Uh, we kind of go back and forth, we flip-flop between um, being like, we need to desexualize the dance and we need to sterilize it and, and you know, make it fam- more family-friendly and then being like, it's, you know, getting super sexual now and then there's these two schools that are kind of fighting against each other and within that there's these uh, undertones or overtones of, um, of body shaming as well because with sexuality also comes um, of... Uh, a value of certain bodies being worthy of sex or worthy of sexuality. Um, We have this problem in our society where we only often feel worthy of, being desirable or of desiring, we only allow ourselves to have this connection to our sexuality when we feel that we fit into the aesthetic expectations of what a sexy mm. sexual being looks like. So, you know, if you don't fit into certain beauty standards, then you don't feel that you're allowed to be sexy um, or that you're allowed to be sexual. And so we're constantly fighting this complicated web um, of these these cross-contaminating battles of um, you know having to look a certain way but then wanting to have the freedom to look multiple ways and then policing each other and body shaming each other but then feeling that same body shame from on ourselves like i think i think that anytime that there's criticism from one another it's coming from a place of self Uh, a lack of self-acceptance or a lack of self-love. Because if we all just loved ourselves and if we all felt comfortable with our bodies and felt comfortable with our sexuality and our sexiness um, or or lack thereof, um, we wouldn't care about what other people were doing or how they looked. I think that we've just been so conditioned to hate ourselves that we then project that onto others, whether we're aware of it or not. And and so that's why I think it's so important that self-acceptance and self-love, self-acceptance more than self-love, because self-love is like, you know, love yourself, think that everything about you is good where self-acceptance is like, I am I am okay. I am okay as is. My flaws, the things about me that I don't like, those things are okay and not liking them are okay. I think that's a more complex and more um, helpful approach than self-love. But if we were somehow all able to work on that and to achieve that, I think that we would eliminate a lot of these issues of body shaming, slut shaming, and, and um, uh, bigotry or racism as well within, Society, but you know, specifically talking about the belly dance world, you know.
1: Ah, it's so interesting how you uh, put uh, differentiation about self between self love and self acceptance, and it. Uh, uh, it's just interesting to point to those nuances because I never thought about those two terms specifically but for me, for instance, self-love like I always thought if it's a healthy self-love it's not just saying oh, I love everything how it is it's actually acknowledging that oh, my I maybe don't like something mm-hmm. and I may want to improve and sometimes I may need to improve even for health reasons that can be regardless it's not even like getting thinner or getting uh, more curvy it's for everyone be different even for mm-hmm. health reasons something but i was always thinking that true self-love it's not closing your eyes to potential um uh, uh like let's say problems uh no but not letting them grow into problem of like hating uh, mm-hmm. hating yourself so it's like okay acknowledging that there may be some areas that i need to take care that's that's better i guess a <laughs> uh, description like not problems but areas of taking care and not uh ignoring them that's a true self-love because then you actually care about yourself and not um fooling yourself by ignoring certain aspects of your life Uh, But now I kind of think, oh, maybe self-acceptance in this case, it's uh, uh, like better description for this kind of stuff. Because yes, with this term self-love, like we so much use it these days. And Mm. so many people put so many different things uh, in this word, in this term that um, it kind of sometimes loses its like healthy meaning, I think. Like it's my opinion.
0: Uh, Yeah. So... I agree, and that's that's kind of wanted. Why I wanted to make that distinction because if we break it down to semantics, self love and self acceptance are the same thing. Because real love is like if you really love someone, you accept them. You think that everything about them is okay as is, and you also want them to to be better or feel better, and you support them on their journey through that. But there's nothing about them that you don't that you aren't okay with. So like real love and therefore real self-love is the same thing as self-acceptance. But I think that self-love has sort of snowballed this, like some other connotations of like, you know, taking selfies and thinking that you're so awesome. But then what about the days where you don't feel awesome? That needs to be okay too. So self-acceptance means accepting everything. It means even like, I'll, I'll tell you something really personal, but I was, you know, the other day having a really hard or in the, sometimes in the night I have, I'll i have like get into my head and start being like, oh, I'm awful. I hate myself, blah, blah, blah. Just having these sort of like downward spiral spirals of self-loathing, you know, as us sensitive folks do. And um I I just started saying out loud to myself, like, it's okay to feel this way. It's okay that you don't like yourself right now. It's okay to feel sad and you are okay. So it was like these layers of, and that, that just like immediately calmed me down and, and just settled everything. And I just, I felt so much better. Um, just being able to say to myself instead of fighting, cause we, we said, Oh, I need to love myself. I'm supposed to love myself. And therefore, you know, I I can't dislike any of these things about me. But self-acceptance takes into account um, and holds space for even the moments where we don't like ourselves too. Because you can't always love everything about yourself. Sometimes you're not going to like certain things. And as you said, sometimes you need to improve things. Like maybe you've been um, not a nice person or maybe you've been racist or maybe you're unhealthy and you need to improve those things. Um, Self-love kind of doesn't give us necessarily the um the the space for managing those things it just says like you need to love everything but what if there's things that you don't love or that you want to improve upon you need self-acceptance to allow those things to be okay and you can't improve you can't get better um you can't love yourself until you're okay with where you are um you know if you're constantly looking towards the goal and looking towards you know everything is a means to an end the journey needs to be i am okay where i am right now so if you're feeling anxious if you're feeling sad if you're feeling ugly if you're feeling um you know whatever negative about yourself that needs to be okay and i think that is self acceptance and that allows for a more comprehensive self love because then you will, you give yourself the space to be where you're at, which is the only way you can move forward.
1: I guess it's the art of learning to be your own best friend. Yeah, <laughs> because if you see our like our best friend who will love uh, a lot, but if they if you see that he or she uh, harms. Uh, themselves we probably will not ignore it but we will try to bring the attention to but not in a way of, of putting them down yeah that we very often do to ourselves like uh, again uh, uh self-hate and all those negative talks in our mind but we for towards our friend we probably will try to bring the attention to something bad that it needs some improvement or some work in a nice and kind way not that we will stop hating them or like thinking mm-hmm. that they are bad but towards mm-hmm. our ourselves we some of not sometimes very often actually we do not take the same kind approach and trying to be our friend
0: <laughs> 100% yeah you nailed it on the the nailed the, the hit the nail on the head <laughs> uh- You never get that phrase right, because yeah, we are internal dialogue, our narrative with ourselves is so important and our body listens like the body we have such a somatic relationship between our like neurobiology and our thoughts and our physicality and we have these somatic connections and you can actually make yourself sick um, and and, and manifest the things that you're telling yourself. So when you're having these you know internal narratives and and your dialogue is saying you're so stupid why are you thinking this stop hating yourself just love yourself like you're such an idiot what's wrong with you? or I'm, I'm a bad dancer or i'm ugly or i'm fat or whatever you're you're you you hear those things your your inner self hears that and your body hears that you would never speak to your friend that way so yeah we need to change our internal dialogue to speak to ourselves the way that we would speak to a friend. You're not going to lie to them necessarily. You're not going to say, you know, like you said, if there's something they need to, to improve on or that isn't going well, like if I have a friend who's in a toxic relationship, I'm going to say, look, I support you no matter what. I'm not going to tell you what to do. And, and, you know, I I am here for you no matter what. But these are the ways that I'm hearing the ways that you're struggling because of your relationship. And I want you to, to, to do something that's going to be... You the most healthy for yourself as opposed to being like you're so stupid why are you in this negative relationship or everything's okay you know it's fine just keep doing what you're doing so yeah if we speak to ourselves as our best friends we create a much more accepting and loving and tolerant and and therefore spacious way of um of moving through things. It's, you're never going to change someone's mind by calling them an idiot or saying that they're stupid. And therefore you're not going to change your own mind. If you're having negative self-talk mm. by saying you're so <laughs> stupid, why are you doing this? So if you, and and that's why I was starting to say to myself out loud, I was just whispering when I was having this down you know, moment. And I said, it's okay. You're allowed to feel this way. It's fine. You're all right. And, and if we can, whether, you know, verbally, out loud, or internally, start to talk to ourselves and say, you know, it's okay that you feel this way. And, you know, I still love you, and you're still perfect the way you are. And, you know, but I care about you, and I want you to get better. And these are the ways that you might want, or how about this, let's consider these options, you know, so just being gentle, being compassionate, being understanding, um, while also being, supportive to ourselves as you would a best friend. Like we are so mean to ourselves. And I know a lot of people can probably relate to this. You know, we're so loving to others. We're so accepting. We're so tolerant. And yet we cannot extend the same generosity to ourselves. Um, I, I wrote in a, a post recently about body image. Um, you know, I said, I feel like a fraud because I uh, I work so hard to promote and to facilitate and support body positivity and self-love for my students, and yet I can't do the same thing for myself. But even the criticism of myself for not being able to do that was self-harming. And so I said, you know, I I promise you, I think you are beautiful, but I have such a hard issue feeling the same way about myself. But when I was able to even say, it's okay that you feel that way to myself, um, you know, it's normal to have these struggles. That was the step that I needed to kind of start moving forward. Um, If you get stuck in like, you should be, you should be, you should be, you shouldn't be um, around your own thoughts, then you can't progress forward. So that's, yeah, like the, the, the tool of being your own best friend is... Allowing for everything to be okay where you are, and that's that self acceptance piece, um, but then creating this more tolerant and loving, compassionate self talk.
1: But I think it also depends on the stage of our uh, Baladins, specifically even Baladins journey. So, I, to be mm-hmm. honest, don't think that you are a fraud by trying to bring this. Uh, uh, sensation to your students but not maybe experiencing it right now because you and your students you are different stages of your ballet dance exploration and if you Think about like yourself and why you came to ballet dance and what it gave you the sensation back then in the beginning. Mm. It was very different from now. And I was just thinking it's sort of the issue that we lose it very often because when we came to ballet dance, ballet dance is a beautiful art that can help us to connect back with our body, with our femininity. And it brings so much joy and freedom and like breaking all those, uh, um, holds or caves that we put ourselves in and trying to explore as something new to us but then very often when we stay for a long time and especially if ballet dance became our career or part of our professional activities then our relationships with ballet dance and with our body as a dancers it changed too and then it switches Sometimes either back or sometimes even to worse, because then we put a lot, even more uh, additional attention to how our body needs to look like, what does it need to do, and then it becomes not just a part of our joy and passion, it becomes. Um, kind of requirements for us because now mm-hmm. dance is our profession and career so it's kind of like different stages i guess of uh exploring even ballet dance and what it gives us as uh, individuals and to our body and our connection to our body. And for you, you are definitely like active performer and active like pro- belly dance professional and teacher. And, uh, Uh, so i don't know i just was thinking like now because uh, a lot of professional dancers or dancers who are for a long time in a ballet dance uh, field they start experiencing those negative self-talks again even if maybe in their ballet uh, beginning of ballet dance journey they were kind of like not maybe completely free but they were on a way to sort of like be free from those talks because of Mm -hmm. belly dance and its connection to body so i just had this like i thought an idea right now that maybe the switch back goes when we start treating dance as a a profession and basically obligatory part of our life Mm. now
0: yeah i think that's that's actually very astute i think that's a good point and and that can apply to lots of other things too or even just that. You know, you might... There's like levels, it's like a video game, like self-love is a video game and you would unlock level one where you're like, ah, I start to see how my body can be beautiful and I kind of like it and I can love myself and I can be this artist. And then you, you know, achieve more or you get to a higher level and then you have to like unlock the next one. And so you feel like you've plateaued um, or that you've, you know, reverted back to, um, you know, to, to not loving yourself, but you've actually just like gotten to the next level where there's there's more that needs to be done because of where you are in your your career or, or in your life. So yeah, I think that's, that's Mm -hmm. very, um, uh, nice good observation
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking of ballet dance as a profession uh, I also want to at least briefly (laughs) but Mm -hmm. touch can't skip uh, because you mentioned that you were very entrepreneurial in your uh, when you were a child and already (laughs) at 14 years old you were doing a small business uh, and definitely today we can see your entrepreneurial skills uh, applied into your ballet dance and not not only you're a teacher but you're also active uh, a performer like I let's abstract from quarantine times <laughs> right now mm-hmm. uh, but like active solo performer and not only that you're also director of Ballad and troupe. the halva dancers who are also working in commercial world too so how do you feel that your entrepreneurial skills uh, manifests today in your dance activities? And what would you uh, bring um, dentist's attention, like whoever wants to start working as a, well, let's focus on some one thing, like as a solo dance performers in their countries, what kind of entrepreneurial skills or uh, features of their character, they need now to uh, develop youth that may help them on this path. In your opinion,
0: hmm, good question. I mean, I, I don't. It's interesting because I, I see how much I've achieved in terms of the business side of things. Like, I am, I'm a full time professional dancer, dance teacher. So this is my sole income. I teach. 15 to 20 classes, usually 16 to 18 classes a week. Um, some of them are yoga classes, so I also teach yoga. Um, but you know, I'm 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 teaching fitness, yoga, dance, and performing exclusively, and I'm supporting myself. Um, so that's a pretty cool, especially in Vancouver, which is a really expensive city and where artists are not uh, really supported. So yes, I can see how I've like, I've done a good job, but I also feel like I'm not really an entrepreneur. Like that kind of happened accidentally. I'm, I'm an artist, I'm a teacher, like that's what I want to do. And, and I kind of got forced into the entrepreneurial side of things because I had to, because this is, you know, I got thrown into having to support myself and, you know, how can I do that doing the things that I love? So I'm, I don't feel like I'm the, I'm the best authority to speak to like the entrepreneurial skills, um, necessary because that isn't my background. That isn't my, my strong suit necessarily. At the same time, maybe I can speak to that because that wasn't my focus and I've, and I've been able to, to achieve that. So I'll just begin with that caveat. Um, but I think the the, a lot of the the problem that dancers have, and I see this with my students and my friends, is that people have a hard time promoting themselves. They have a hard time feeling worthy of um, telling people to come to their classes or to uh, you know put up an ad or or to you know kind of like present themselves and say, "Here is me. I am the product." And, um, and, you know, come buy my product, it's hard enough asking people to buy your product or your art or your, or your service. But when you are the product, it's even harder. And especially, you know, tying things back into self-acceptance and self-love and feeling worthy and feeling deserving. A lot of us feel like, oh, I'm not allowed to love myself. I'm not allowed to think that I'm good enough to, to promote myself. And, and so, uh, I teach a lecture on performance psychology to my students before they perform. I put on a show um, every year, a huge student show essentially where all of my students from beginner to advanced perform uh, mostly in groups but the higher level students also have opportunities for solos but I I, I rent out a huge theater we have professional lighting videography um, and photography and, and we have like 400 people in the audience it's a, it's a big production so I try to really give even beginner students at least once a year an opportunity to really perform um, in the context of it being a student's a student performance, but I think that, you know, there there's a lot to benefit and gain from what it takes to get on stage and to present yourself. And before those shows, I give a lecture on performance psychology. And in that lecture, I talk about how there's a lot, I'm not going to go into the whole lecture because it's an hour, but mm-hmm. I talk about, you know, a, a trifecta of a spiritual, psychological, and physical approach to dealing with stage fright um, and and lack of self-confidence getting on stage. And there's this whole kind of like spiritual approach to removing the ego and the identity and the small self. But I say in the meantime, as we're doing this lifelong practice of trying to um, separate ourselves from our ego in order to get up on stage and dance, there's a, a trick a more psychological trick to a spiritual problem where we can create an alter ego and the alter ego gives us permission to promote somebody else that isn't us because as i said before we're so good at loving and accepting other people but we're not good at doing the same thing for ourselves so if we create an alter ego as our dance persona or our business product, then it's easier to separate and then to feel worthy of being confident in that person. So, you know, if you get up on stage and you are, you know, pedestrian Rachel versus performance Rachel, performance Rachel, she's a different person and she's this ego. She's this like character. She's my, my alter ego. And I, I, feel more okay believing in her and, and therefore presenting myself in a confident way on stage. And I think the same thing applies to business. So when we struggle with feeling like I'm not allowed to promote myself or, or to think that I'm good enough, if you want to succeed, you have to get over that. And I think one of the quickest, easiest ways to do that is to make your product Um, Separate from yourself. And that means maybe, you know, giving them a different name in your head um, or uh, just a, a, a list of characteristics that aren't you. So you have this idealized version of yourself that is your product, that is your dancer, that is the thing that you're selling, that you're promoting. And then when you say, you know, come to belly dance classes by Rachel, I'm not saying come to my belly dance classes, I'm saying go to Rachel's belly dance classes, I'm promoting somebody else and and so that makes it easier to psychologically get over that that um mountain of being like I don't feel deserving and I'm scared of promoting myself like this is dog eat dog and if you want to pay your bills you got to put butts in seats and you got to put bodies in studios and the only way you're going to do that is by selling <clears throat> your product. And the only way you can sell your product is believing in your product. And if you don't believe in your product, you have to pretend you do. And so that sometimes means making it something that isn't you. Um, And then on top of that, I would just say like logistically, that's sort of the more psychological aspect of the business stuff. But logistically, um, finding a balance between a really strong online presence and then also having a really strong reputation within your local community so that there's word of mouth. Um, So I do a a combination of like, obviously not during COVID, but I would do physical posters um, around the locations where I teach. I teach in multiple different studios and I do physical posters, um, having a strong ability to, produce good posters like good graphic design um is really important i use a, a program called canva mm-hmm. it's free And it makes it really easy to make like relatively – I'm not going to say my posters are amazing, but they're good enough. (laughs) And um, they're eye-catching. Having good photographs is super important. And so then you can create these eye-catching images that have the information, that bring people in. Um, And I do get a, a certain percentage of my students in classes because they walked by a studio and saw a poster. Um, and then I also do a combination of um, online ads. So like Instagram and Facebook and paying for those ads. Even if you don't directly get students from those ads, just having them circulating and having people see, even if they're already kind of in your um, your demographic or they may already be your students, but just seeing you kind of repeatedly, it reminds them just to, to, oh, I like this product. I like these classes or, oh, that's my teacher. And so they feel, Um, a little bit more uh, I don't want to say loyal because that feels like manipulative but but just like more connected to um, you know what they're already engaging in Um, and then also you know making sure that your community has a way of talking to each other so a lot of the time you know I get students because their friend was in my class and and said they really loved the classes and I was a good teacher. So making sure that you're providing something that's good enough um, that makes people either want to come back and or, you know, bring their friends. And so word of mouth – um, local physical representation as well as online representation. Um, the l- latter to require um, good imagery, so photographs, good videos, YouTube presence, a decent website, um, and uh, and you know decent graphic design. And if you don't feel comfortable doing those things, then invest money into having other people do it for you. And mm-hmm. that would be my my advice.
1: <laughs> yeah, but definitely just want also to bring uh dancers attention that creating your graphics these days it's not a big science and uh, yeah many of us as artists feel tight on money and finances. So even that website that you mentioned Canva.com, it's dot mm-hmm. com, has so mm-hmm. many templates, it's so easy, there are so many free stuff and templates there. Yeah. So for dancers just not it's much scarier to be afraid of oh I need to create my own designs rather than actually go and uh, uh, figure out how to do it (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and it doesn't need
0: to be complicated like just a nice solid photo with a white background and just like nice font you know just listing the basic information you know uh, clear is better and um people like simplicity so you don't need to do crazy photoshop like just simple graphics that get the message out there and having an image of you is super important
1: Mm. and also thank you for bringing attention to the issue of dancers being shy to promote themselves i personally think that's the um one of the main blocks for many dancers there are so many talented super talented super skilled artists who are basically just uh Sitting around waiting for uh, jobs to appear and complaining mm-hmm. about lack of gigs or complaining of like bad audience or high competition instead of forwarding that energy into actually taking steps and promoting themselves and approaching mm-hmm. like figuring out what is selling like I kind of feel that when we grow as ballet dancers all our attention is on the dance skills and of course it needs to be on the dance skills so, but then when we grow we reach the level that now we want to become professional or the teachers or performers, we kind of assume that, oh, just because we are skilled dancers, like things will happen. And we forget that (laughs) there is a whole other part and we are shy or there is this stigma or like this uh, resistance, like if you start selling art, it stops being an art. Oh, like, I don't want to be a salesperson rather than just going and seeing it. And I was always there are two things that you really brought uh, attention, and I just want to highlight that one of the part of the issue is that we think that we are the product, and I always uh, try to bring it uh, focus that it's not us, it's our service is the product, mm-hmm. it's a dense class or the dance show but because even we ourselves very often see oh we don't want to promote ourselves although we are not promoting ourselves we are promoting our dance teaching skills or what, like our dance classes, or we are promoting our dance shows, and even when our clients, let's say we are like dealing with a performing aspect, our clients very often will be not thoughtful in their wording. They will kind of like say, Oh, you're too expensive, like, or you too, you're too something, and then like they're not really evaluating us. And for us as dancers, professional dancers, it's extremely important every time for ourselves to differentiate. Okay, they worried but that's not what they're talking about and not let that really like hurt us or take it personal. Mm-hmm. And the idea of alter ego that's very cool cu- cu- cool too. Are you often in my uh, activities um because for many years I actually was working as a full-time performer, not even teacher but just performer. So you deal a lot with that like Issues of taking it too personal <laughs> or oh, like shyness no. of like, oh, it's, it's me because um, our body is a tool for our shows, but it kind of mm-hmm. feels like we are presenting or like, uh, I don't want to say selling our body because that will sound very (laughs) wrong, but because it's so uh, dense, it's so connected to body, it feels very vulnerable as if the talk is about us, not our dense Mm -hmm. services. But I often um, was thinking uh, about the idea of putting different hats. So not Mm -hmm. necessarily alter ego, but it's like, I like put a hat now, it's Jan, uh, me uh, wearing the hat of artist whenever I'm a dance studio. Now, mm-hmm. when I'm on the phone talking to client, I am like having the hat of Yana, salesperson. Whenever I'm in mm-hmm. front of my computer, like Yana, the manager organizing logistics, uh, or Yana, web designer, like working on the website. So it's like putting different hats for your yourself. Uh, that yeah. like, okay, I'm abstracting now. I'm a, like, as if you are... Uh, as if you're having the whole crew of, of like different <laughs> like staff but it's the like you're team. fulfilling yeah you're fulfilling <laughs> different roles of your team so of course your manager they will not be sensitive about like clients talking like somewhere like choosing not careful their wording about your services because you are now like a manager like yeah. you have nothing to do with that directly like right now the talk but <laughs> yeah thank you for bringing that um attention to this stuff also, I want to uh, ask you something. You are not only performing solo; you are also directing the whole group. What is the main differences you feel uh, between uh, fulfilling solo gigs and fulfilling uh, like a group performances, like gigs, uh, from your point of view? And uh, what are main, uh, let's say, challenges? And what are the main like? Uh, uh pleasant uh, aspect of it or like some advantages too (laughs) in both uh, both uh, aspects
0: um well to be honest my halwa dancers don't currently get a lot of paid work um uh, uh what ends up happening is you know i i want to make sure that my students are getting paid if if you're dancing professionally I think that means that you need to be pay, you need to be charging professional prices. They they charge less than I do, um, just because of experience. But they're, you know, I don't allow for my students if they're performing to be sort of undercutting, you know, the the base uh, uh, minimum price for for local dancers. So, you know, a lot of the time, someone will call. Uh, or email about a gig and they'll be like, oh, we want multiple dancers. And I'll say, sure, it's X amount of money per dancer. And they're like, oh, can I get a deal for having more dancers? And I'm like, no, because they're not sharing money. Like they, they each are doing a service and they need to be paid... Per dancer, it's, it's actually way more work um, when you have multiple dancers, because mm-hmm. then you need to organize rehearsals and you need to organize, you know, studio time for them to get together. So m- personally, when I dance... Like often i get I get uh, gigs where they're like, "Oh, we want we want you and one other dancer." And I charge more for that. And I tell them it it requires more coordination. We have to figure out costumes. We have to decide on music together. We have to rehearse. um, you know, and if you want choreography, it's more if you want us to improvise together, you know it's still more than solo, um, but it's it's, you know less than than choreography and and uh, a lot of the time, um, People don't just—they just don't want to pay more. It's already expensive to hire one belly dancer. It does happen for sure, um, and I do often send out individual dancers from my troupe um, when uh, people don't want to pay my price. Then I offer them—you know—it's if you want a student, um, you know, it's this price. Um, i I'm, I'm, I'm also not really because i am already doing so much with my my teaching business and with my own business um, I'm honestly not the best manager for my troop. Um, I'm not, you know, working hard to promote them. They have a whole page on my website. and um and I, I do mention them, you know, in in my contract and when i'm when I'm discussing with clients, but I'm not actively going out and promoting them um as as a a paid group. But what I do instead provide is, An opportunity for them to perform multiple complex group pieces in my year end show, um, which is sort of like what they they mostly work towards. And then every month I put on I mean, not during covid, but I was putting on uh, a little show at a a cafe in Vancouver called Cafe du Soleil has a little stage and that was an opportunity for them to to do solo performances. So being in the troupe, it's it's less about commercial professional dancing and more about learning about being in a troupe, dancing as a group, learning group choreographies um for, you know, this big stage production which is mostly like within the dance community um and their family and friends and then also having the opportunity to to learn about being a solo dancer and a solo professional dancer. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's less about me sending them out for gigs that does happen, but it's more about providing performance, solo and group opportunities within, um, the dance community or within, you know, the things that I'm producing, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, totally. That totally makes sense. Um, I was just curious because, uh, not, uh, Not many of our previous guests were actually combining solo performance career and at the same time also doing uh, coordinating and directing the group that was also available for commercial events. That's why I was curious to ask, uh, how is it going uh, for you? So thank you for sharing. Also, by the way, you have appeared in multiple TV shows and uh, movies. Do you think, do you feel that that contributed any way to the success of your teaching and performing career? Uh, To be honest, no,
0: I I don't think anyone saw. Um, Yeah, like, I mean, I mean, maybe a little bit, like maybe one person saw. Well, you never know. Uh, I, I was in, um, I was in a, a short film, like a, um, a student, a film student was pre- like doing a short film and then, and put it into, a um, I guess like a film competition or something. And so I was in that, uh, I don't know like which sort of communities or cohorts saw that. Um, and I was in a really brief scene in a show that was popular for a little while called Hellcats. It was like about, um, cheerleaders and there was a scene where the, some of the main characters were in a restaurant and, uh, Yasmina and I actually, the dancer who I think I saw on Hornby Island and began dancing because of her, her and I got hired to be like the belly dancers in the restaurant. So we were in this scene, um, and uh i i also was the um uh what's it called um a g- consultant i was the consultant for a movie that was being made called belly um, which is a true story about the director's daughter who had this really amazing and and uh, a complicated journey with belly dancing and how it changed her life, and I was the the consultant on that for um, sort of just like what it would be like to be a teacher. Like I was I was filling in the the realistic role uh, um, context for the script um, in terms of the belly dance aspects of that, and then I was the the feature. For the the promotion trailer for that, um, the film hadn't been made. It was like this is a trailer to get the funding for the for the production, and I was in that. Um, and I think that probably brought a little bit of um, of notoriety. It was on on Vimeo, which has a little bit more. Um, span, I guess, than, than maybe like the, that, uh, what's it called? The short film. Um, but honestly, I think it's more YouTube, um, than film and television. Like if I had a major role that a lot of people saw, then sure, I think that might have helped, but it's, People who are watching those shows, they're not like, ooh, I'm going to go, you know, take belly dance classes with that belly dancer. They're usually people who aren't necessarily interested in that and it just happens to be something that comes up. But if you're watching a belly dancer on YouTube, you're actively seeking belly dancing or it's coming up because it's somehow being uh, funneled to you because of your algorithms. So YouTube is, I think, more – a contributor to you know whatever success that I have or um, uh, visibility, as opposed to you know small roles here and there in film and television. But when I was in 2010, I performed at um, the Vancouver Film School. It's this big sort of like uh, well-renowned film school. And they have uh, an annual awards show. And they hired me in 2010 to perform at the awards show. And because it was a film student event, they had, you know, decent footage of me performing. And I had put that up on YouTube. And at the time, there was a YouTube channel called Unicornoroso. I don't think it exists anymore. Um, It was this really sweet Italian guy who just, like, posted Belly dance videos, and he had millions and millions of followers. And he contacted me and said, Can I post this video? And I was like, Yes. And um, that video got like several million views. And I'm ashamed now because it was a terrible performance. I, <laughs> I was so much old. it was not good. It was 10 years ago. Like every year, I feel like, Oh, my videos from last year are so embarrassing. Like I'm better now. I'm better now. Um, so that was 10 years ago and it was like not it was not great um but I, you know people liked it i guess it was like at the time there was less um there were less options in terms of belly dancing like it's just so much more people know it so much more now and the 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 level the expectations the the um you know base skill levels are higher um but at the time i got a lot of views and i think that that helped a lot too
1: mm. <laughs> we are so so self-critical and so harsh on ourselves like so often <laughs> but uh, i understand that i can hear like uh, this feeling but it's uh, um it's funny because typically in reality it's usually not that bad as we think <laughs> it Yeah. Is. I guess so. <laughs> um I'm also very uh, curious to ask about other activities that you did in your career because you already brought attention to the fact that you were consulting um, creators of some movie, and this is something that we as ballet dancers we don't think as a potential activity. We always like or teaching, performing, mm-hmm. or appearing at a TV uh, pro- uh, programs or like media in general, but we uh, don't even consider that we can be consultants for something not maybe we will not be able to do a full-time thing but it's something too that uh, can be explored too but also you have been as far as I know a choreographer and helping with preparations for uh, Miss Canada Mm -hmm. Miss Hong Kong and Miss China (laughs) can you tell about that experience how that happened and what what was the process and what was the fun parts and the struggles with that kind of uh, work so um basically
0: it's it's private work it's not like I was hired by the organizations um but contestants mm-hmm. in various beauty pageants have on multiple occasions um contacted me and said I'm doing you know I want to do a belly dance performance for the talent portion of this competition um can I hire you to teach me and to help me you know put together a costume and to choreograph so <clears throat> And actually I'm, I'm working next week with, it's been a couple years since I've done that, but someone just contacted me this week that she's, uh, competing in a beauty pageant and she wants to belly dance in the talent portion. So we're starting private lessons next week and we have two months to like do it. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting because it's always people that have no experience with belly dancing before they just kind of, you know, maybe they, they've tried it in their living room by themselves or they, or they, you know, have watched it, um, And they just decided that they want to perform belly dance solo in the talent portion of this huge competition. And so usually they contact me like two months before the event. And so we have to hustle. I have to teach them not only a choreography, but I have to start from the basics. And I... Uh, like the first thing that students have to do with me before any student works with me um, is they have to go through a a process of prerequisite material to make sure that I'm producing ethical and responsible dancers, both um, from a cultural perspective as well as from a a physiological one. So dancers have to go through a, a one hour lecture on belly dance history and cultural context, where we talk about issues of cultural appropriation, of colonialism, of um, uh, white supremacy, And uh, and just, you know, ways that the dance has been misappropriated and misrepresented and ways that we can be ethical ambassadors and guests to this dance form if it's not from our culture. Um, And and also just learning about the history and, you know, who were the pioneers and why and how it's complex. So dancers have to go through that before they are able to dance. And then I also do a pretty extensive breakdown of posture and alignment for safety and for the aesthetics of the dance. I talk a lot about pelvic floor and pelvic wall, um, and these are things that most people have never thought about or have had exposure to. And so it's you know we have to do strengthening and training and and mind body connection, mindfulness, and it's it's a bit of a process. So before dancers are even able to really start doing dance moves, there's already this whole thing that they have to go through and and start, you know, taking time to embody. And, and then we start learning basic movements, and then we have to learn choreography. So, you know, a normal student doing a solo, for example, in one of my shows, like a, a student show, they've often done a beginner course, which is like eight to 10 weeks where they have done the prerequisite material, they've spent those weeks practicing um, and learning various movements, they often will do beginner a second or third times, that's another, you know, eight to 10 weeks again, two or three times, then they'll usually go to my intermediate class, you know, so there's this process, Mm -hmm. they've spent months, at least, if not years, taking everything in. And then they get to a point where they can perform a, you know, compelling, interesting, entertaining solo for, you know, two and a half to, to five minutes. Um, but for someone to come with zero experience and have to fast track that whole thing, it's really interesting. It's really fun. It's very exciting, but it's also a little stressful. And depending on how the person learns and how quickly they pick things up, um, you know, it it can be more or less stressful. And it's, it's, it, it's a fun process for me as a teacher slash choreographer to have to adapt and figure out in a really short period of time what is this person going to be capable of within mm-hmm. the next two months and how can I create something that's going to challenge them and be, you know, good enough that I want them to try to win this, this talent portion but also not be beyond their ability that makes them look not good. So it's it's a fun um, but it's kind of stressful challenge and uh, yeah, I'm excited to, to start working on another one next week.
1: <laughs> mm. So you have done what is several ones and I was actually about to ask you, like, do you have any, like, specific tricks that you use in these scenarios? Because at the end of the day, like, if someone comes to you with this kind of uh, um, question or the task, uh, your main goal is not really to teach them ballad dance. Of course, you will need to go through, like, teaching ballad dance movements, but that's not the final goal. The final mm-hmm. goal is to help them prepare beautiful performance. Mm-hmm. And they have zero experience in ballet, dance. <laughs> so from choreographic point of view, uh, do you have any like nuances or tricks or differences if you were put in a choreography for your regular beginner student or for this kind of contestant uh, for the competition?
0: Definitely, yeah. So, it, and even that's just like group versus solo as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a, in a beginner class, it would always be a group I would not have a beginner do a solo um and it would be like let's do this movement for a count of eight and then do it again and add arms and you know like you make it exciting by by being really clean with the technique and having everyone be in sync and then you don't need to do a lot of variety in the choreography but for this type of thing yeah it's it's like you said, you're not teaching them how to be a belly dancer, you're teaching them how to create an entertaining performance. So finding the balance of compromising, teaching them technique well enough to execute it that it's you know I still feel proud about presenting this as my work as a belly dance teacher but also kind of like cutting corners where necessary um so that we don't need to do the things that maybe take more time um so what I think about as from a choreographer choreographic perspective is like where do you get more bang for your buck what movements are easier to do but have bigger impact um what are the movements that are more nuanced and subtle and take more time to learn but maybe aren't as exciting for us non-Middle Eastern audience. Um, And so things that are a little bit more grand, um, using props like veil or wings is a nice way to create some visual excitement and dynamic um, and contrast. So like, you know, you come out with the veil, you do a couple things with the veil. Ooh, that's exciting. You drop Mm. the veil and then already you've taken some time and now it's different um, doing things that are more kind of like gestural. So like, you know, a nice pose and an arm movement and like a hair toss versus, you know, doing an intricate shimmy with an undulation. Um, and then also just, uh, really customizing to the specific dancer. What are their strengths and weaknesses? What are they able to do well? So I'll often just start with like the first class together will just be basic technique. I'll just go through as many things as possible. And I won't teach them to the same degree that I would a beginner. In a beginner class, we'd probably learn like two, maybe three movements in in one class. But in this scenario, I would teach like probably 10 or 12 movements in one class, just go through them quickly See, what can you do? What are you picking up quickly? What are you not picking Mm -hmm. up quickly? and then trying to incorporate the things that they're good at. And often I can just sort of tell, um, you know, once you've been teaching for 12 years, you start to be able to just look at a person when they walk in the door and have a sense of what they're going to be good at or not. Um, people carry themselves in a certain way. They walk in a certain way. I can usually tell what other physical activities they do. So I'll be like, oh, you're a rock climber or you do weight, you do weight training or, you know, you do cycling and they're like, oh my God, how'd you know, um, Just because of the way that they hold themselves or the way that they execute the first couple of movements. So it's, you know, experience helps to have a more intuitive sense of what someone's going to be able to do. Um, But yeah, it's like... What what can you kind of cheat like like what are like things that are um like with coach patient marks like belly dance ish or you know dance ish or or you know grand or gestural that's going to be exciting without necessarily having to be um, so intricate and what are the things that also people associate like non belly dancers associate with belly dance so things like Maya like a downward infinity mm-hmm. um or like you know sh- sh- shoulder rolls I don't want to say snake arms, but like you know moving the shoulders just things that are um a little bit more like stereotypical so we're creating a little bit of a um a character a caricature of the dance um it's less artistically satisfying for me because I really want to honor like a more authentic rock sharky, rock spelady, you know, skills with my students. But with this, I kind of, I know I'm being a showman here and we're, and we're trying to win a competition for a non Middle Eastern audience. So we have to cut corners and yeah, be a little bit more um, frugal with like, where are you getting the most value with your movements for the least amount of effort?
1: (laughs) Hmm. Did you have any uh, cases that the contestant after, working with you and putting together choreography you actually discovered that they decided to continue their ballet explorations afterwards (laughs) yeah I had
0: one student um, who after doing the competition she stayed and did private lessons with me for a while on and off and came to some group classes um and she actually got pretty good which is which is cool
1: Ah, that's so cool (laughs) Mm. yeah that's different like you know like uh Different activities that we often don't consider as like consultants for someone or choreographers in a very unique, let's say, not uh, popular niches. Not in terms of popular, like it's not our main like focus, even in the radar of our thinking about uh, options that we can do as a ballet dancer as, as a professional activity. <laughs> so that thank you for sharing the stories. It Was very uh, fun to hear. Uh, like what was the working process? I also want to ask uh, one question that um, it kind of like, uh, I don't know, may may sound a little bit uh, shallow, but I... uh, another word like how to describe it but i kind of like think um it's i'm very curious to know like your experience and it's kind of related to what we talked uh, before in terms of uh, uh, body image and the stereotypes of how we should look and how we should look specifically as ballet dancers because you experiment a lot with um element of your appearance such as hair hair color <laughs> and you have such a gorgeous like uh, uh like recently i saw the photos like of those blue shades and to be honest it fits you so cool that it kind of like feels that you were born like that, <laughs> that it's like really <laughs> your color uh, and i'm curious um when you go and perform as a ballet dancer, like, uh, do you have any fun stories, uh, possibly, or how in general, like, uh, people react? Uh, do they expect to see a ballet dancer like with the blue hair, or is it something like uh, uh, not really any special for the audience? Like, uh, uh, how is it going for you specifically? Um,
0: it was interesting when I when I first sort of. Uh, i mean i I've, I've I've been experimenting with hair color since I was like ten years old, but I, I you know, started doing things. I tried to be more strategic about my hair color when I first started belly dancing, because I didn't think that a raksharki dancer should have colored hair. There was Mm -hmm. sort of this, this look of like, you need to look a certain way. Um, the fusion dancers look like this, the raksharki dancers look like this. And I was like, okay, I was kind of straddling both worlds for a little while. So I would have a more versatile look where I could, I had like a side shave, Um, under, under my hair, like one side of my head was shaved. So I would like pin my hair back when I would do fusion stuff and I would keep it covered when I would do raksharki, for example. And, um, I get a lot of responses from like when I go to festivals or if I go to like a workshop or uh, like a intensive weekend, people see me in the workshops and then they see me perform. And after they see me perform, they're like, wow, I was not expecting you to do raksharki. I thought you were going to do fusion (laughs) Mm. because of how I look, because of how I dress. But I'm like, I don't like I've never been into conforming to norms and I I've just kind of always, you know, gone to the beat of my own drum and I decided to just be myself and I'm noticing now that there are more rakshaki dancers with tattoos and colored hair and piercings, and it's becoming a little bit more acceptable to, to have a variety of looks. Um, so at the beginning, I found, and I still do within the dance world, that people are sometimes kind of surprised um, or or, or they might, I might get like weird looks. But now I think, A, because colored hair is a little bit more acceptable in society, especially in Vancouver, like we have a really big kind of like artsy alternative community there's lots of people with colored hair so people are more used to seeing it and I match I usually try to like coordinate my costumes with my hair so it's part of my whole aesthetic and now I get a lot of really positive feedback from it like people call me a mermaid <laughs> That's mm. sort of my brand and I do a lot of performances where people I hear people in the audience going oh my god her hair is so amazing and little girls always come up to me and they're like your hair is so pretty you look like Ariel you're like a mermaid and um and I hear people in the dance community also calling me a mermaid I was um I did a performance uh, like a live uh online performance a little while ago and I was watching the comments after because people were like posting in zoom they were commenting so you could get real-time feedback as you were dancing afterwards and once the the cami little was announcing me and a couple people were like real life mermaid coming up like that's sort of <laughs> my uh, now I guess is that I'm I'm a mermaid um because of my blue hair so I I feel like it's it, Uh, mostly positively received now um, but I had a little bit of uh, uh, pushback at the beginning
1: Ah, that's something actually I completely did not expect that uh, resistance will come uh, like would came uh, in the past mostly from dance community I actually was thinking like if you will come up with something because I don't know I was just curious to ask I was like oh maybe there was nothing really like uh, (laughs) uh, anything like that but I thought if you will bring up any stories they will be more related to general audience perceiving what ballet dancers should look like mm-hmm. but again unexpected like we are twisting like actually it's more sometimes resistance comes from actually dance community and yeah. our colleagues and friends <laughs> Ah, yeah, it's also
0: hard to know what the general audience is thinking because a lot of people just don't tell you, right? Like you're you're on stage, you don't hear people saying stuff. Um, uh, you know, most of the, the feedback that we get is people coming up to us and saying something. So it's often positive. People aren't going to come up and be rude necessarily. And any negative feedback that we're getting is usually on YouTube. Um, and I find... Any feedback that I've gotten that's negative is usually more on my body than on my hair.
1: Mm. Yeah, but still, like, you can feel the energy, especially for us dancers. We are so tuned to, like, this energetic exchange between audience and us. And uh, we still can, like, if people sometimes don't need to tell. Specific of what they think, yeah. but we can feel this, uh, especially if a solo dance in like intimate setting that our audience is close to us, like in restaurants or like banquet halls, etc. It may be yeah. different on theater that. They're kind of in yeah. the darkness and you don't even see them. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's still very surprising for me to to hear specifically like this twist. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I kind of feel the time uh, flew so quickly. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh my God, there okay. is so much uh, more to talk about. And I feel we can t- keep talking hours and hours and hours. Yeah, uh, but definitely. I also want to be, like, uh, mindful and uh, respectful to, to your time. But thank you so much for sharing the dance experience and uh, dance uh, wisdom with us. And uh, uh, thank you for being open to go into different controversial topics and just uh, being uh, uh, open and honest, like, in, in your opinion of sharing uh, your experience and... Uh, I'm pretty sure that would be very inspiring and supporting to uh, many other dancers who definitely can relate to different parts of your stories. And, uh, um, you are such a beautiful, inspiring, uh, example of, uh, celebrating uh, yourself, uh, even although you may sometimes not feel it <laughs> yourself, <laughs> but you definitely are. I, and I just wish you good luck and, uh, uh, opening and exploring even further that uh, space of self-love and self-acceptance expe- uh, ec- um, in the best meanings of those uh, words. <laughs> well, thank you. This was such a pleasure. And yeah, I feel like, oh my God, we didn't
0: talk about so many things. Mm. Um, I, I tend to babble, but it was such a pleasure and such an honor. And I'm so grateful. It was lovely to talk to you. You're you're just... Um, awesome. And, uh, yeah, I, I hope that people, you know, maybe got a positive message of self acceptance and self love. Um, I think, you know, if I can kind of sum up, um, one thing is just like, be kind to yourself and be kind to others. Um, our world has so much, unnecessary cruelty in it. Um, and so much of that is targeted towards ourself, which doesn't allow us to have the capacity to be kind to others. So, you know, stand up against bigotry, stand up against um, discrimination, um, you know, take care of others, be kind to everyone, um, self-reflect and find the ways that you can grow while still being your best friend.
1: Mm, that's so true (laughs) well also before i ask our final question uh can you please tell people where they can find you where they can follow you and uh, if you have any uh ongoing or upcoming projects that you would like to share with us
0: Ooh, (laughs) self-promotion. Yes.
1: (laughs) We are all Uh, up for that (laughs) here. I'm
0: like like all into it now. Like, I'm like, yeah, man, go for it. Promote yourself. Um, Yes. So my website is racheldance.com, R-A-H-E-L dance.com. You can follow me on Instagram at rachel underscore dance, R-A-H-E-L underscore dance. Um, on YouTube, I am Rachel Dance as well. And on Facebook, I am my personal page is Rachel Clayman. Um so R-A-H-E-L-C-L-A-M-A-N. My fan page is Rachel Dance. I don't really post a lot there. It's mostly just like ads and stuff from Instagram. So if you're following me on Instagram, um you can you can light the Rachel Dance page, but if you want to kind of like get to know me a little more and see some of the activism stuff that I do and, and get more up-to-date posts on my classes and workshops, et cetera. And then I would suggest friending me on my personal page at Rachel Clayman. Um, and upcoming stuff. Well, I have ongoing online classes happening during the summer. Um, my classes are usually progressive, but I am being a little bit more lenient right now with allowing new students to kind of do drop-ins or to, to come in um, later. Um, I've got a nice slew of online classes, including yoga and fitness, in addition to belly dance. Um, and I will be hoping to continue with that in the fall. I'm not sure where things are going because of COVID. I'm tentatively planning to go back into studios in September, but it will depend on um, if we get hit with the second wave or not. But I'm now that I'm set up with online streaming classes and it's going well. I'd like to continue some of those, so I will still have some online classes. So if you're not local um, or you are, you know, just wanting to do it from the comfort of your home, I will. I'm hoping to have at least some, if not all, of my live online streaming classes in September. I'm also working on um, downloadable online Online courses. So um, there will eventually be purchasable, pre recorded, downloadable content um, a beginner course, an intermediate course, a, a belly dance fitness course, um, some yoga, meditation, and some one offs, as well as um, some choreography, etc. And I'm hoping to continue to add to that. So that's my big. Upcoming project. I do not know when that will be available, but hopefully soon. Um, And next weekend, July 24th, is a really wonderful event that I cannot speak highly enough about called Evening in Damascus. It's hosted by Danny Ramadan, who's this amazing um, activist and author in Vancouver. And he's just anyone who meets him knows how magical he is. And he puts on this event every year. It's a fundraiser for LGBTQ plus refugees from. Syria. Um and uh it's an amazing event with just so much love and support. There's drag queens from Vancouver as well as from Syria. Um there's an oud player and I'm going to be performing. Um it's usually a live event. And I usually perform at the event, but because of COVID, it's now online. The plus side is that if you are not local, you can now access the show. So I'm doing a full 20-minute pre-recorded performance. Um, My partner and I worked really hard on shooting multiple costumes in multiple locations and doing fancy editing. So it's it's hopefully a nice, entertaining production. Um, And uh, if you're in Vancouver, today is the last day where you can also pre-order a beautiful meal uh, of Syrian food from Tabia, and it gets delivered to you, and then you watch the show online. If you're not local, you can still just watch the show and not eat, but you can eat some yummy Syrian food on your own. Um, So that's evening in Damascus. Um I think I have it on my website. If I don't, I should get that up. But you can also just Google evening in Damascus or go on Facebook. Um, and I think that's all I have coming up at the moment yeah so instagram youtube facebook website um online classes and uh evening in damascus
1: (laughs) Mm, sounds exciting like lots of upcoming nearby plans and projects and hopefully uh with our current situation we'll get a little bit more at least stability or knowing soon what is happening Uh, even if it's not you know like for sure coming back to normal what was before quarantine but at least like having a little bit more certainty what is happening to have ability to plan a bit more ahead but even right now Mm -hmm. sounds like a a lot of exciting things and I will definitely include all links to your social media and website in the uh, show notes to this episode so all our listeners you know you can always find those links there and check uh, and follow our beautiful guest uh, not only right now but like even in the future whatever is coming next and was maybe not announced uh, today and uh, thank you once again for spending your time and sharing with us, and uh, uh, giving so much inspiration and wisdom to all our listeners. And I would love to sum up our interview, our conversation, with our traditional signature question. That I think would be we partially talked about it, but it would be very cool, like summary, like summing up our uh, our all different themes and subjects that we discussed uh, today. And the uh, question is, what makes you fall in love with ballet dance again and again so you keep doing it for so many years? I think
0: the storytelling. Um, I, I I feel that this dance form... Maybe more, maybe less or same as other dance forms. But I think that dancing is about telling a story with your body and the the connection with the music and the audience or to the audience through the music being a physical manifestation of music, which is the really the connection. And... um the opportunity for constant self-growth along with self-love and self-acceptance um, for community and, um, and for helping others grow. I, I love teaching maybe even more than I love performing because I love seeing other people learn and seeing other people grow and, and the community that it allows for. So, yeah, I would say if I were to sum it up, why I love or why I fall in love with belly dancing again, even though I struggle daily with like, why am I doing this? But what keeps me coming back is the feeling in my body of manifesting the music, the storytelling and the opportunity to provide an experience and a service for my audience to transcend time and space for just a moment and be part of um, a collective experience. And, um, the opportunity for self-growth, self-love, and self-acceptance in the context also of community.
1: That's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us, and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place.